welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here. Not going to spend much time at all before we get into the interview today with Dan Whitehurst. I will let you know at the end of the podcast where we might be able to meet up as I travel around the country doing shows. I'm going to be kind of in some West Coast areas as well as some other interesting spots here in the next couple of months. So I'll let you know that at the end. Right now, let's jump into our interview this week on the School of Laughs podcast. I am sitting across from Mr. Dan Whitehurst. How's it going, sir? It's going good, Rick. How are you? I'm doing good. You know, I was uh, wanting to get you on the podcast for a while. You've been traveling a lot. I've been traveling, but I thought, man, a Monday night, there might be a good chance. I'm, I'm here. And you were just in Huntsville last night yep. at Stand Up Live. Stand Up Live, Huntsville, great club. I haven't been down there yet. I've only heard good things about it. Oh, you got to get down there. It's it, it, They are very nice. It's got that new comedy club smell and treatment of the comedians where they're not sick of them yet. They oh, yeah. treat everybody like gold. Still getting a free bottle of water? Oh, yes. Oh, I got to yeah. get down there. <laughs> they treat you very well. That's good to hear, man. Um, I've moved here in... Two, when did I move here? The year 2000. Okay, I remember when it you moved It may have been 99, here. 2000, somewhere in there. And you had just kind of started comedy I maybe did. a year earlier or something, if I remember right. Yep, and you were traveling with the Midwest Tool and Die Company. Yeah, yeah, the right? old improv group. Yeah. Did yeah. you ever see us do the thing? I did not, but I saw your posters in different places. And I was yeah. like, I know that guy. That's that dude. <laughs> There's that guy. And... um the first thing I found out about you, though, is when you used to be a police officer. Yeah. Like a detective? I was. I was a detective for 14 years of my career. I was on for 19 years total. And was, that was the, the last years leading up to comedy? Right, yeah. Yeah. And so I want to go back before that because I don't know much about what you did before that. Before I was a police officer, I was a prison guard. Oh, really? And before that, I was in the Army Reserve and... Uh, Worked at a cast iron factory. That's cool, man. So any, any, um, I know you have plenty of stories probably from the detective work, but any funny stories that you have turned into anything in your stand-up? Is, is that one big story that you do now kind of from those days? Yes. As a matter of fact, what's, we, when we first met, I was kind of a one-liner comic. I and, remember and that about you. I loved uh, I love Stephen Wright. He was the first comedian I watched, and I thought, well, maybe I could do that. Mm-hmm. But I w- and the comics alike, Mitch Hedberg, Stephen Wright, they were more the one-liner people. And when I would work, I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be that one-liner guy. I just loved that style of comedy. Dwight York, those guys. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but I would, and it would be hit or miss. Sometimes I'd have a pretty good show, and sometimes hmm, iffy. But we were talking a uh, couple of comics I work with after shows. We'd be sitting around talking. One of them said, what's the funniest thing that ever happened on the police department? And I'd tell this long story that was true, verbatim true. And they'd be like, you've got to put that on stage. And I'd say, well, how, how do I word it? Just like you just did. <laughs> so the first night I tried it, because you know how you get that fear the first time. Right. you, And especially if you're a one-liner guy, now you're going to go out and tell this long story. There's this fear. 
but when it it just it worked great and i just remember this daryl rhodes that told me he said do that on stage i look back and i could see him in the back and i just gave him a thumbs up and i started doing that story every night every show and then uh just having conversations with people mm-hmm. i would tell them a story that really happened they'd bust out laughing i'd add it to the show so now it's about probably 80 percent stories now i have tweaked them a little bit you know oh yeah you got the creative classes. license yeah yeah you gotta keep it interesting and and then punch it up that's funny and so the when you started doing the more story stuff did that uh i mean i i tell like i think i have four or five like four minute stories in my show that i can put in there and i i tend to warm up the audience with some shorter stuff some pretty accessible stuff then I'll dip into the first story, and if they really like that, then I'll roll another story or two, and I'll kind of pull out of it with some more punchier stuff and then end with a four- or five-minute story. Right. So do you ever just lead right into it, or do you kind of ease into them? Uh, it's, usually I start out with something pretty short, but last night it was uh, different. I was in Huntsville, and Matt Mitchell, I'm yeah. sure you know Matt. Cassio. Yeah, he was the feature, and he's really, really good. And, I mean, he just he blew it up. But I've got this thing. I'm a huge boxing fan, and the heavyweight champion is from Alabama. But nobody, because I've been polling the audiences all week. Out of the probably a 1,000 people that attended this week at Stand Up Live, I think maybe 15 knew who Dante Wilder was. Wow. And that just totally amazes me. So. Anyway, Matt just totally blows the crowd up. And I walked out there and said, uh, the first thing I said was, who here knows who Dante Wilder is? And it just shut the crowd down for just a second. And there were like three people knew who he was. And then I went into this boxing bit that's new, but it just immediately, it caught. But uh, a friend of mine who was in the green room said that when Matt walked back in the green room, and I walked out there and said, who, you know, started that yeah. way? He said he looked around the TV and said, what's he doing? And then, um, but it, it took off so quick. Then he was like, oh, that was, you know, yeah. according to my buddy, he said, oh, that, that was smoother than I thought it was going to be. But, yeah, usually I try to start out kind of something shorter because there's that fear of talking a long time without a mm-hmm. punchline, you know, or without a laugh. So Yeah, that's interesting. And, and in situations like that, Sometimes a story does better after a bunch of shorts. Like True. If Matt's all shorter stuff and no stories, then a story kind of marks the transition of, hey, this is going to be different. Right. And so even I've seen non-comics, I've seen bands do this before. In fact, probably the best example I've ever seen is somebody who I was like, oh, there's no way they can follow that. So like I think it was 2010 we had the flood, mm-hmm. and they did that big concert at Bridgestone to raise money afterwards. It was huge. They had like 15, 20 artists come in. And on the bill was ZZ Top doing a tight 12, doing like three of their oh, big wow. hits. They, I mean, blew the roof off the place. And I look over at my wife. I'm like, nobody's going to follow. There's like an hour left. Who's going to follow that? Mm-hmm. Here comes Michael W. Smith, Christian gospel guy, just a one-man keyboard player, basically, with his keyboard under his arm. He just takes a couple seconds, sets it up, plugs it in, starts with a kind of a slower number. I'm like, this is going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, by the end of his 12 minutes, people were on their feet. They're all singing along. I'm like, that's how you do it. Wow. You, you know, sometimes fast can follow fast, but sometimes you need to take a breath. And so he gave the audience like a breath. 
right. and then built them back up on his own time. Yeah. And so that takes maturity and confidence and some experience to do. Yeah. You know, in 98, you probably wouldn't have felt good about popping up there and launching into a five-minute story <laughs> after somebody fireballed them for 20, 30 minutes, right? Well, I still, I'm never comfortable. I mean, I've been doing this 17, 18 years, and I still get that, uh, yeah. uh bef- right before the show. And, uh, and it, in a weird way, I never, like when you're a police officer, they say you should always be at a certain level of alertness your whole eight hours. You should never be relaxed during your, sh- your eight hour shift. Hmm. Um, and, and as weird as it sounds in comedy, if I'm a, a, a room for five days, I'm never relaxed until the last night when I say, thank you, you've been great. And I put the mic back in the stand. I feel like a thousand pounds has been lifted off of me because I'm so concerned that something could go wrong all week. And it's crazy to worry, but that's just the way I do. Yeah, no, I'm I'm similar in a sense that I'm I'm not necessarily nervous, but I'm like, I want it to go well, Mm -hmm. probably more than whoever hired me wants it to go. You know, a lot of times people hire me like that, that takes care of one hour off of the, the list for the day <laughs> or whatever, you know, but I want that to be a good hour. Exactly. So, so you've walked into places where it's not set up right or the you know crowd sitting too far back, sound lights, all those kinds of things are off. Yep. And you just realize sometimes a little bit more lately, I'm like, well, I've told them about this 10 times. If they're not interested in making it the best show ever, nothing I can do about it. And I'll take the pressure off of myself and, and usually I'll find a way to make it work anyway. Occasionally, it's still just the obstacle's too big, you know. But when I see that they don't care, I'm like, all right, I still care more than you, but I'm not going to kill myself if this show doesn't rock. Right. You know what I mean? That, that You remind me of a funny story. The The first time I ever actually made decent money, I'll tell you how much it was. I got $1,000 for a show long before I was ready to get $1,000 <laughs> for a show. But the thing was, it was at a... Uh, it was a, a big corporate show, and it was in North Carolina, and it was in this huge banquet room. Well, when I come walking in, and when I say banquet room, it was more like a gymnasium. They had four basketball go- basketball goals set up, regulation height. They weren't basketball court size. Uh-huh. They were closer, but they had two different games of basketball going on. They had uh, the... Air hockey, uh-huh. two of those tables, people's playing air hockey. They had a tent, I mean, a, like a canvas and a golf ball, and you would hit this golf ball into this canvas, and it would tell you how far the drive would have went. <laughs> right. And they've got a huge stage, and behind the stage is ESPN highlights. And I'm sitting there watching all this stuff, and I look at my watch, and I'm thinking, that, man, they're going to have trouble shutting all this stuff down before the comedy show. And then I watch a guy walking up there at the microphone, and I'm listening. I can barely hear, but I'm like, I think he's introducing me. They're <laughs> yeah. not shutting this down. And I was only scheduled to do 20 minutes. But I went up there, and I talked for 20 minutes. And I had people come up afterwards and say, I'm sure you were funny, but we couldn't hear a word you said. They didn't shut down anything. Yeah. But. And when they did give me the check, they said, he handed me the check and he said, we didn't really think this through very well. (laughs) I said, thank you for the money. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you get paid for just absorbing the impact of that. Yes. And you know, it's funny on shows like that, there'll be a couple people in the crowd that are like, oh, they're just, they're going to, they're not going to move because they know you need somebody to look at. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and then afterwards I come up, man, that was a hard gig, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what could have made it better. Uh, seats and a light and a, one microphone and no foosball. <laughs> yeah, all the, shut down the sports. <laughs> yeah. And usually it seems like the bigger the budget, the less they think about it sometimes. Mm-hmm. When they have almost no money, they worry about everything. Yep. So I, I kind of like to be in the middle somewhere. If you're paying me too much and not paying attention, it's no fun for anybody. And the gig probably isn't there next year for somebody else. Right. You know what I mean? So you always ask them, first question is, have you had comedy before? If they say yes, I say, who was it? And if I know the comic, I'll call the comic up and say, how did it go? Oh, man, that's a good idea. Try to troubleshoot. Because, you know, especially if it's a regional gig, something fairly close by, I'm like, probably somebody I know did it. Mm -hmm. And if they give me a heads up, I go, don't even do it, you know, then I know. But if they had a little problem and they troubleshoot it and give me the info, then I can fix it before I go in there. Yeah, so, but you don't always know. The outside of a corporate gig, can you think of a, a club night that, for whatever reason, went a little haywire? Like, yes. <laughs> you're like, I got a lot of those. Hold on a second. <laughs> I have one in particular. Yeah, the mayor. you want me to name the club? If you want to, yeah. Well, and it's not a bad room. I've done this room several times, but it was the loft in Columbus, Georgia. Oh yeah. And this was several years ago, and it was me, Landon Lyon, and Keith Alberstadt. And what had happened, they had a fallout. So I don't know if they called Landon or Keith, but they were like, three y'all come up, split the time equally, and we'll pay you this. So we come up there to do it. And the first, and that Landon and Keith both said, you go last. And I was like, you sure? Yeah. First show went great. It really went great. And I felt pretty good about myself i said you know i'm assuming we're swapping up the second show and they said no let's leave it the same you've been to the loft right yeah yeah it's been you a know, while. the there's a curtain mm-hmm. so the second show audience is right behind the curtain so the second show audience kind of hears the last comics yeah set. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i don't have that much especially back then didn't have that much material i'm gonna be doing pretty much the same thing but the second show it just it just started laying an egg right out of the gate, and I could feel myself sweating, and I could feel the tension, and I know I was putting out that tension, and the audience is feeling it, and it was making them uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and they started to get up and walk, and I was counting people as they were walking. Like out loud? No. <laughs> you, <laughs> no. Know, you know, that bold. <laughs> I think I do, I do remember saying... One guy got just kind of shook his head and he got up to leave and I said, "Good, he was killing the he was killing the show." I thought that was funny. Nobody else oh. did, and so I was just digging myself a deeper hole. But I walked more than half of that room. Yeah, and in that time, this was oh shoot, I guess two thousand three maybe, uh-huh. but it was just. It was such a horrible feeling. Yeah. Such a horrible feeling. That is an interesting room. I don't know how much has changed there, but, you know, and it's interesting. It's kind of a military town. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people there to, to drink and party, and the comedy seems to be a, a distraction. Like, sometimes I wonder why people go in the comedy room. I think, the, like, the girls tell the guy, we're going to go watch this, then we're going to go dance. And yeah. the guy's like, whatever you want to do. So you have, like, half the crowd, the guys with their arms crossed. That's better be good. You know, that kind of mindset. But, uh, that club has been around forever. It has. And has had everybody on its stage that ever did anything, music or comedy. Yep. That's an interesting spot down there. It really is. And and you, the vast majority of the shows I've done there have went real well. But that one was, it, it 
it still makes me uncomfortable talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's move on. <laughs> you have anything coming up that's going to be a tough show, you think, or anything that you're apprehensive about? Yes. Uh, this weekend, actually, I'm doing that Patriot Fest. I don't know where my spot is on the lineup or anything, but there's several big bands there. And if I'm not mistaken, I might be the only comedian. So, And that's an outdoor deal, right? Uh, it is an outdoor deal. Where's that at? Because last year I got an email about that, and it never worked out. Uh, the Titan Stadium. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in there. I don't know. It's probably going to be in the parking lot. But it's. Uh, I'm friends with one of the guys that's putting it on, okay. and uh, he called me up about doing it, and I'm uh, kind of anxious about that. You get most of your gigs from just people who know you, or referrals, or pretty much that kind referrals. Of and, and I've always been real lucky in that. I've had a lot of people when I was starting out that would say, Hey, can you come open for me? And they would take me and, you know, and that's how I got in the rooms I, I got in and, uh, which was really good. But also there's always that little thing about when you start out at a club featuring for, and you do it every year, uh, it, it, it's hard to get bumped up after a while because, mm-hmm. oh, well, he, he will do this, you know, he'll feature. So, and I, I love featuring, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's actually to me the easiest spot yeah. on the whole on the whole bill. You know, yeah. it's it's fun. It's not the greatest money, but it's fun. It's right. really inter- I enjoy it. It's twice as fun half the money usually. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know when I was featuring, I could not wait to get up to headline, and as soon as I did, I'm like, oh, I'm not ready, quite ready for this because. You know, my whole thing was trying to to burn up the middle spot and make the headliner work for his money, and all that came right back around. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I play guitar, so you know, when I started playing, started headlining, guys would play electric guitar in front of me. Like it's like I'll take you one one higher, you know. Yeah, it would just get to be a little bit extra extra heavy on that, and it is hard to get bumped up, uh, especially when you if you're like a lifetime opener for some people, or, right? Or you've come through three or four times, they just start saying, "Well, that's that's so and so's opener." Or yeah. middle act, you know. Um, not a bad way to get into some places, though. But it is a little trickier to move up that way. Where's your favorite place that you've played? I really love working at Zany's. I feel more comfortable on that stage. And when I was when I first started doing open mic comedy, I never, ever thought I would actually get to work at that club. And, you know, anytime I got a guest spot or something, you know, to me, that was the Super Bowl working yeah. there. And for whatever reason, I just got real comfortable there. Uh, I mean, I'm fairly comfortable everywhere, but I feel most comfortable there just because it's the place, I, uh, the first real comedy club I ever mm-hmm. got to do a guest spot at, you know, and I've been treated very well there. So I like Zanies. It's, um, it can be a little intimidating being the MC there sometimes. Yes. And I've always felt that it's just more of a setup deal than it is the, the audience. You know, the stage is a little bit better now than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Remember how kind of it was higher before and went all the way to the corner, mm-hmm. basically. And they kind of made some extra room and lowered it just a tad. That's made a big difference, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's better now than than it was definitely but it, it's i've just always enjoyed it you know just the history of it it's mm-hmm. such a historic place you know but uh, I, there's several i really like uh i love that new huntsville room and man you've got to get in there you would love it they, yeah they support comedy good and they're you can make all those rocket science jokes. Oh yeah, I got I got a good joke about a gravity wedgie. Just waiting, <laughs> just waiting for a chance to use it down there. Do um, 
Now, some people may know that you do some shows out in Branson. Is, oh, yeah. Are you going to do that again? Or I, is it something you're like, I did it, it is what it was? Or Well, I did, uh, I was actually there about in March. I did uh, a show there, and it was uh, a produced show, and uh, had a ball. It was great. The governor was there. The governor actually opened for us, the governor yeah. of Missouri, but he'd only been the governor for two weeks because the other one got in trouble for something. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I made a comment about his new governor, had that new governor smell <laughs> about him, but uh, now it went great. But as far as, uh, I don't think we will do a show there uh, like we had before. Uh, it was fun, but it was, uh, Branson's kind of a different town and the comedy there is a little different. James Sibley is a great comedian. I'm sure you know James. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he is he blows it up there because he's so unique. But a lot of the comedy in Branson is you go to one theater and see it. It's very similar to the next theater. Yeah. They wear the overalls. They wear the yeah. hats, the Billy Bob teeth or whatever. And they do kind of the same thing. Sibley's, of course, totally different. Um and in our show, we did an hour and a half show, uh, G-rated, all ages. We had kids uh, in the crowd, and uh, we shot a chicken out of a cannon, and we did did some things that normally I wouldn't do, yeah. but, uh, you know, I did it. <laughs> and talk about the hustle behind getting people in the seats for those shows, because, you know, uh, were you doing like an afternoon matinee or evening, or what was your schedule like? When our first year we did, we had an 8 p.m. show at a place called the Crystal Theater, and we would get up at 6 in the morning, and we would hit all the restaurants, and we would hand out flyers for our show, and we would talk to people, and that's how we pretty much did our advertising, is uh, going in, and there were certain restaurants that would let you, and certain restaurants that wouldn't. Sure. Well, of course, we weren't the only act doing that. So if you go into uh, eat breakfast somewhere, you're going to get wore out by entertainers handing you flyers. Uh -huh. So uh, my big thing was I would always walk up to their table and say, I'll be taking all those flyers and handing you this. <laughs> yeah. And it got a laugh. And then we would talk. And then maybe they'd come. Maybe they wouldn't. So that was the first sh uh, year. The second year we... Uh, got a show at the bald knobbers theater which is the oldest theater uh it, the bald knobbers are pretty much the theater group that started branson mm -hmm, right. and uh they had a 1500 seat theater and we had a 2 p.m matinee show and we probably averaged about 35 people a show mm -hmm. in a 1500 seat theater and uh we have had as few as nine right and it was really difficult, but I will say this for Branson, the the demographics were very, they were very old people there. The majority of them, the tourism, I'm going to say they averaged around 80. I know yeah. that sounds crazy to no, no, travel a long ways, but there's a lot of old people get out and, and see the world and, uh. And they're easy to make laugh. They were easy to entertain. Even the small crowds, they were, they were great. They're there to have fun. Yeah, they were there to have fun, yeah. and uh, they were enjoyable. They really were. They always say Branson is where grandparents go and they bring their parents to the show. Yeah, <laughs> that's about right. And what I love that I do love the town because mm -hmm. they are very. Uh, it's a very religious town and it's a very patriotic town, and the. All the World War II vets, apparently if you are a World War II vet and you're still alive, 
you have to go to Branson. Right. It may be a law. But I've met so many of them, and uh, I would always talk to them. And I met I met a guy that said, uh, I said, were you in the Pacific Theater or the European Theater? And he said, nah. He said, I was in a European Theater. He said, man, we had it made compared to those guys in the Pacific Theater. He said, those guys had it rough. And he tells me that. And then his wife leans over and said, he spent three months in a Nazi POW camp. Oh, wow. And I was like, what a humble man. You know, what humble. a humble man. You're about to lay on how tough it was to be in the Crystal Theater. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've done two seasons in the Crystal Theater. 35 people a show is killing me. <laughs> it didn't pay as well as the <laughs> European Theater. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I noticed... Uh, I've never done like a, a show show in Branson. There was a couple little comedy clubs that would pop up. You know, Funny Business had one for a summer or half a summer. I did a couple of weeks back to back then. And it's 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 tricky to do a true stand-up show there. It is. Uh, uh, Bob Nelson yeah. went up there and tried it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, oh, the Russian guy, Shmirnov, Sh- yeah. Yakov. He, uh, I think he did okay for a while because he was so popular. But uh, well, when the he, Cold War ended, there was a yeah Cold a, War ended. That kind of kind of hurt him, and then they um, he wound up maybe doing two shows a month, and the acrobats of China took mm-hmm. over the theater and did most of the stuff there. But it, it's it's real hard, yeah, to get a crowd for pure stand up comedy. Yeah, and it's it's it seems to me that at some point they'll have to switch and convert over like the the old school world war ii vets the the people are coming right. there 70 80 i mean the, the comedy worked back in those days but at some point those are going to age out and you know unless people go there to see the novelty of it and not necessarily go because that's what they're used to seeing well you can see the demographics are changing now branson is kind of catering more to the younger people mm-hmm. and the shows are starting to fall off but there was i think if i'm not mistaken 125 shows a day yeah. in the city including the morning shows and the matinees and everything and uh but you can see every year they're slowly putting in more water parks right. more roller coasters more youth oriented things and uh and the shows, everybody's struggling. When I, what I say struggling, nobody's making the money they were before. Like right. uh, the Bald Knobbers Theater, they were averaging maybe five fifty or so a show. And they said, you know, nine years ago, we sold out six days a week, 1,500 seats. Wow. Six days a week. That's just amazing. So you think it's just population dying off or more people not going on the road and seeing things or is there more entertainment with casinos closer to where people live now and they go see it there what do could, you think could be a little of everything it really could so you used to live out in the country mm-hmm. and was the reason for that because you were a country guy or because you wanted to stay out of the city i mean people can probably hear your voice and tell you're from Tennessee originally? Uh, yes, I was born in Knoxville, and my accent is Appalachian. I grew up with, uh, when I was a little kid, my dad was in the Navy, and I lived in the Smoky Mountains, what's now the National Park. My grandfather's place was grandfathered in, as it were, uh, but it was a little log cabin, had a six-foot ceiling in the kitchen. My oh, uncle man. was 6'3". <laughs> so, they were poor people, but that's where I got my accent. But the reason I moved back out in the country to be honest 
when I retired from the police department or took a medical, actually a medical disability, for a long time, everywhere I went, I would see something that I would remember something that happened here uh, or something that happened here. And you have no idea how many things happen. The stuff you see on the news and the stuff that doesn't make the news, you add them together, you know. Yeah, it's like 10, 10 to 20 oh, to 1. Yeah, it's it's just – and I would just always – I saw this here. I saw this here. And I just wanted to get away from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I moved out to Ashland City and uh, loved it, loved living where I did. It was great. I couldn't afford the place, but it was a great, beautiful place. And uh, loved my neighbors. And uh, But it was so inconvenient to come back and forth to Nashville. Yeah. I was probably 50 miles from Nashville, and it was just – it was just uh, too much, too much gas. I was 13 miles from the closest store. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, I had to load up if I went to the grocery yeah. store. And I had, I, you know, I was living by myself. Nobody, nobody came out there. So it just got old. But then uh, once I moved back to Nashville, I really appreciated it more. Got a smaller place. It's easier to take care of. Yeah. And physically, I can't really do the work you got to do to keep a keep a farm going yeah so. no doubt about that and you're closer to hitting you know closer to town so you could hit a few open mics or a few yep. shows a lot more often do you find yourself getting on stage a little more i do yeah yeah i come out and i still go to some open mics and stuff and uh sometimes just to hang out with buddies because you know you know how comics are you don't see them it's, it's the weird thing about comedy is you can be really good friends with somebody that you don't speak to and you only see them once a year but right when you get with them yeah. you're just right back like you were you know yeah. like you know so uh yeah it's like instant instant friends if you want to go hang out with your buddies go to an open mic and there they all are yeah. you know? how would you describe uh, the nashville scene how, how it's changed in the almost it's almost 20 years since you started. Oh, yeah. It's it's changed a lot. Uh, saw a lot of people move up and become really, you know, really good and really doing well. And a lot of people dropped out. And I'm amazed how many people. It's like there's so many people doing comedy now in Nashville. It is a big boom, isn't it? Yeah. And there seems to be a lot more st- stages. I mean, when I first moved here and you were just kind of starting – you know, I've been at maybe nine years altogether, but when I first moved to Nashville, there was the bar cart coming station, mm-hmm. and man, it seems like, I don't know if Spanky's was around back then, maybe the not bar quite car, yet. Spanky's was the bar car. The bar car moved to Spanky's, okay. so it was kind of a tie. One week, it's at this, uh-huh. and the next week, it's at this one, uh, but there was that. There was a, a pizza place down on... Broadway, I think, or maybe 21st that did it. Uh, but yeah, there were just very few stages, but there were very few comics, too. Right. Uh, and there were, the group I was in, none of us had ever been paid. You know, we were all pure open mic, uh-huh. and we were all terrible. And then you had guys like you and Tim Northern, uh, Danny Stortz. Oh, yeah, Danny. Yeah. yeah, Danny was working quite a bit when I first moved here. Yeah. Him and Sharon. Yeah, I, I always really liked that guy. He was so funny and clever. I really... He had a joke about, uh, we live at the end of a, a truck ramp. Yeah. It's hard to have nice things. <laughs> yeah, can't have no knickknacks. Yeah, no Hummels, <laughs> precious moments figurines. <laughs> yeah, he was he was a good guy. I think he's doing cruise ships now. It's the last I heard. Maybe. I haven't seen him. The last time I saw him is when we were looking for our house out here a good seven or eight years ago. 
maybe longer than that, and he was showing houses. Well, Sharon was, uh-huh. his wife, and he was there. So we walk into a house, and he's like, hey, how's it going, Rick? I'm like, who's this guy talking to me? <laughs> I'm like, Danny, what's going on? Wow. Yeah, it's pretty pretty random. Yeah, so there is a lot more, seems to be a lot more stages now. There's been, one thing I've noticed is there's almost always one or two clean open mics now, whereas there didn't used to be any no, discrepancy either way back in the day, right? Uh, yeah, I don't so, think I remember any clean open mics back then. I don't, because I remember I would, because I was working clean everywhere I go, I'm like, man, just put me up after somebody that wasn't too dirty, mm-hmm. you know, because it would get pretty filthy pretty quick. But I know Bo Schuster was running the Belcourt Taps, and that was kind of a clean. Yeah, and I like that room. I I love a clean room. I, I'm the same way. It, and, you know, I had changed because I don't care what you, people say. I think it's – me personally, I think it's harder to do clean comedy. I think there's an art to it, and I've I've listened to some dirty comics that I absolutely think are hilarious. But when I first started, I was so much more dirty than I am today, mm-hmm. and now I look back at some of the jokes I did and wish oh, I wish I'd never done that. <laughs> it is interesting how things change, and and like you, I, I appreciate all good comedy, whatever the context is. You know, people have crafted stuff together. Who are some of your uh, favorite comics now, whether they're local or? Bigger names, like who do you get excited when you find out they're going to do a special or do a spot on TV? Oh, man, there's so many. I love Nate Bargatze. I think he's, and I, you never even think of him being clean. And you, you don't you don't think of you being clean. You just think funny. Brian Regan, you think funny. You know? But uh, Nate Bargatze's uh, one that, uh, and unfortunately, every time he's at Nashville, he sells out before I can get a ticket. Yeah. So I never get to see him. Uh, here, but uh, loved. I love Mitch Hedberg. I thought he was just amazing. Uh, wow, there's Jonathan Winters. <laughs> I loved him. Yeah. Now, do you like the like the wordplay guys like Mitch yeah. Hedberg? Mm-hmm. Did you ever like Dimitri Martin? Did you ever see him? Yes, yes. And I loved his calmness. You know, super calm. That, yeah, super smart guy. Very smart. I think he holds the world record for writing the longest palindrome or something. Like he's a He's a word guy. Hmm. I'm not 100% sure what a palindrome is. It's like, you know, uh, a word, Anna, where it works oh, forward okay. and backwards. Yeah. Okay. Or, you know, dad or mom. But he can do, like, words that touch both of these walls with letters and then come back. Huh. Like in, and some people can just, like, write those things out in their brain. Wow. I'm not that good with words. No. I was having a hard time figuring out the word anagram. <laughs> I'm, I'm, now I'm not sure that's the right word. <laughs> palindrome, anagram. It's one of them words that are backwards and forwards to say. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to take your word for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure which one to look up first. Anybody like pop on your radar you never even heard of before, and all of a sudden they're doing an hour somewhere, and you're like, who's this? Oh, yeah, a lot of them. And and I can't even remember some of them's name, but I see them for the first time. And, and that's what always impressed me about going to, especially when I was just an open micer, was going to a real A room mm-hmm. and watching somebody you've never heard of just watching them totally destroy a room because there's a lot of really good comedians out there that you're not going to know about. Mm -hmm. You're not going to hear about them. They're not going to get on TV, but yet they are very powerful comedians. And, uh, it was, it was just a, it was great to see them, you know, watch them work. And, um, man, there's so many, I guess I should talk a little bit about, Writing, you talk about telling stories. You find the best way to kind of hone it is just 
keep telling the stories and working it out on stage, or do you kind of listen back to it at all? And a little bit. I, I listen to it back uh, when I when I record them. Uh, and I'm actually I'm trying to write a book of short stories of just everything that happened on the police department. I'm trying to come up with every funny or unusual story and uh and sometimes when i'm doing that i come up with more material for my act because and when like i said when i was a a one-liner comic i'm trying to make something out of thin air and to me i love that part of the art the people that can create something totally out of their imagination but i found that me personally it's easier to just take something that really did happen and polish it up a little bit and put it out. And uh, so that's how I've been writing now is basically trying to remember me and somebody will be talking and somebody will say something which will remind me of something that happened to me years Mm -hmm. ago that was really funny, but I haven't thought of it in 15 years. Boom. You know, now I got a new story for the act. And, uh, so it makes it it's a lot easier to write that way. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I definitely think getting together with some of your old dudes that you used to hang out with on the force, mm-hmm. you know, just taking them out to lunch, doing that once a month, you'll probably undercover enough stuff to to write another story and get a couple more jokes going. Yep. I was a uh, funny story. I was at the police credit union. I still have an account at the credit union, so I use them occasionally. And uh, I never see any cops anymore. But if I go up there to the credit union, all these cops that I haven't seen in years, there's always a lot of police officers up there doing their banking, and they'll always come up, hey, what are you doing now? And uh, I, I took a load of CDs with me up there. To the I had them in my car, so I'm in the credit union getting getting a 20 or whatever. So my guy was like, what are you doing nowadays? Doing comedy? Really? You still doing that? Yeah, I got a CD. You want to buy one? <laughs> yeah. They're standing in the bank. I sold six of them one day that's because great. they can't say, well, I don't have any money. You're at the bank. <laughs> that's, that's a, you got to put a little sign right on the ATM machine. It's only because I have a good heart that I'm not up there today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to take advantage of them. That's hilarious. Let me ask you just for a couple of tips. Uh, you know, one thing it's over the years, whether it was a uh, relationship building with club managers or befriending comics or just something that, People may not think of as a business approach, but something that did help you out as far as staying booked and staying staying busy with it. Uh, one thing I've heard for me, uh, I was described by a booker as no drama. He shows up on time. He gets laughs. He don't go over. He, you know, he he doesn't tear anything up and I do stay out of their way, stay out of the wait staff's way. Mm-hmm. I very seldom ever eat at a club, even though they offer you free food and it's not an imposition to them. And I understand that I try to be, uh, as much out of the way as I can. And, uh, if I'm featuring, then, you know, do what exactly what the headliner wants me to do and mm-hmm. what the manager wants me to do and try to stay out of everybody's way. And it, uh, because you, I, you know, you have to really, really be funny to be a jerk and keep getting booked. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And on the flip side, of that what's uh, can you think of any particular or in general mistakes you've made over the years where you somebody called it to your attention and you're like, oh, I, I didn't even know I was doing that, or have you always kind of operated in the in the positive? Because I've I've had things I was doing and, and then somebody finally pointed out, I'm like, oh, that was costing me work. Thanks for letting me know. 
Uh, I had uh, Dana Rose. Remember Dana? She pointed out yes. how many times I said y'all once in a show. She had actually kept track, and it was I can't remember exactly the number, but it was a whole lot of them. I was like, really? <laughs> so I started trying to cut that out. Y'all became my uh, I guess. Mm-hmm. It was a pause word. Y'all. Uh... <laughs> so yeah, that that. That's good. Good stuff. Well, we'll wrap it up right there, Dan. I'm glad you found some time to carve out Thank and hang out. Thank you for having me, man. It's well, great. you know, I have a long list of people I want to get on the podcast, and you've been on it the whole time. Well, thank you. Finally getting getting some time to do some things. Oh. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Dan Whitehurst, good buddy of mine. It's great to catch up and learn a little bit more about his backstory and what makes him tick. He's a great storyteller. And if you haven't had a chance to see one of his stories, check the show notes out. I will link to a YouTube clip or a clip somewhere else that you can see him in action. Very funny guy. Keep track of him. Hey, if you want to keep track of me, find out where I'm at. I'm all over the place. Uh, Give me a shout if you live in the Las Vegas area or in uh, Orlando area, Des Moines area, Provo, Utah area, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, or even Milwaukee area, or anywhere near Bakersfield, California. All those coming up here in the next couple of weeks. We'd love to meet up with you, have a cup of coffee if there's time, or even a larger meal if there's no rush. So shoot me an email, schooloflast at gmail.com if you're in one of those areas and you want to see if we can connect. Other than that, nothing to push, nothing to promo besides just keep on doing what you're doing. You know you can always check out the online class at schooloflast.com. And the live classes in Nashville are always listed at schooloflast.com as well. Thanks a lot. Stay safe out there, guys. And stay funny. And stay dry. Tag on. Stay some sunshine in the sky. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.